Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. I am Major Ryan Serkovich, and your regularly scheduled host, Mr. Daryl Johnson, has graciously invited me to do a guest spot so that I can update the field on the status of a particular area of the law, which has gained special interest at both the trial and appellate level throughout the Department of Defense. Unanimous verdicts at courts martial. As always, let's start with a few disclaimers. This podcast is meant to be educational and is designed to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial and does not purport to represent the views of the Department of the Air Force, the Air Force Trial Defense Division, or the Air Force Appellate Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what is in the best interest of your client, consistent with the law, and your professional and ethical obligations. With that said, I am very happy for this opportunity to discuss the topic of unanimous verdicts at courts martial on this podcast, and I hope that the conversation today will be informative and helpful. In full disclosure, I will note that this issue is still being litigated at the appellate level, and that I personally have raised this issue before military appellate courts. I have also authored an amicus curiae brief on this issue in a case presently pending before the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. I will not be discussing the facts of any particular pending case in which I have been detailed as appellate defense counsel on behalf of a client. Instead, I will be focusing on the law itself and the impetus for potentially raising this argument should it be in the best interest of your client to do so. I will do my best not to bore you with a historical recap of how we got here, but a threshold understanding of the Supreme Court's 2020 decision in Ramos v. Louisiana is necessary. While some parts of Justice Gorsuch's opinion failed to attract a five-justice majority, here is what five justices of the Supreme Court held in that case. Pursuant to the doctrine of due process incorporation, a five-justice majority concluded that the Sixth Amendment's guarantee to trial by an impartial jury applied to the states by way of the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. In fact, Justice Thomas, true to his jurisprudential approach, wrote separately because while he believed that the Constitution compelled unanimity in state criminal prosecutions for serious offenses, he would have instead grounded this conclusion based upon the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment rather than the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. We'll come back to the Due Process Incorporation piece later, but for now, it is important to note that five justices reached their conclusion in Ramos based upon this doctrine. Now, prior to Ramos in 1972, the Supreme Court had considered whether state convictions for serious offenses required unanimous verdicts in a set of companion cases, Apodaca v. Oregon and Johnson v. Louisiana. In Apodaca, the Supreme Court considered a Sixth Amendment argument. In Johnson, it considered a narrowly tailored due process challenge based upon the theory that a unanimous verdict was inextricably intertwined with the government's obligation to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. As Justice Gorsuch explained in Ramos, those two cases resulted in a badly fractured set of opinions, in which neither challenger prevailed. But as we know, the Supreme Court expressly overruled this central conclusion 48 years later in Ramos, thereby requiring that state court convictions for serious offenses must be the product of a unanimous verdict. So the question becomes, given that Ramos required unanimous convictions for every state and federal prosecution for a serious offense tried in America, does that impact the military justice system's current practice in non-capitally referred cases wherein a guilty verdict may be obtained by a mere three-fourths concurrence? Four years ago, in Ortiz v. United States, the Supreme Court noted that the procedural protections afforded to a service member are virtually the same as those given in a civilian criminal proceeding whether state or federal. But does this pronouncement from Ortiz still apply with equal force, given its more recent decisions in Ramos and Edwards? And if so, under what framework would this requirement apply to courts martial? All right, let's talk about that. The first argument flows from the Sixth Amendment itself, and is premised upon existing precedent of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Specifically, in United States v. Lambert, the CAF concluded, quote, 
The Sixth Amendment requirement that the jury be impartial applies to courts martial members and covers not only the selection of individual jurors, but also their conduct during the trial proceedings and the subsequent deliberations. End quote. Now, the text of the Sixth Amendment says nothing whatsoever about unanimity. It only speaks to trial by an impartial jury. But as the Ramos majority opinion explains, quote, Wherever we might look to determine what the term trial by an impartial jury meant at the time of the Sixth Amendment's adoption, whether it's the common law, state practices in the founding era, founding era, or opinions and treatises written soon thereafter, the answer is unmistakable. A jury must reach a unanimous verdict in order to convict. End quote. Thus, the argument goes that because the CAF has held that a military accused is entitled to trial by an impartial panel under the Sixth Amendment, Ramos's insistence that the Sixth Amendment guarantee to a unanimous guilty verdict under the impartial jury clause likewise applies to military courts martial. Okay, two points are worth addressing. First, how does this argument address the question of whether a military accused is even constitutionally entitled to a panel in the first place? And second, what about the fact that those in the civilian world are tried before a jury, whereas service members are tried before a panel? Let's take them in turn. First, even if we were to assume arguendo that a military accused has no constitutional right to be tried by a panel or any other jury equivalent, both the Supreme Court and the Court of Military Appeals have recognized in related contexts that even in the absence of a constitutional right, once Congress or a state affords a particular right by statute, then the manner in which it administers that right must comport with due process and equal protection. Two cases which speak to this proposition, albeit within the context of the right to appeal, are the Supreme Court's 1985 decision in Evitz v. Lucy and the Court of Military Appeals decision from that same year in United States v. Rodriguez Amy. In Rodriguez Amy, the court explained that the right to appeal conviction in the military is, quote, solely of statutory origin, conferred neither by the Constitution nor the common law. However, once granted, the right of appeal must be attended with the safeguards of constitutional due process, end quote. Like the right to appeal a conviction, which is conferred by statute, Congress has similarly conferred the statutory right to be tried by a panel of courts martial on serious offenses. By way of example, Congress could not, consistent with due process, Authorize a panel system in which guilt is determined by handing each panel member a coin and telling them if the majority of you land on heads, then he's guilty. To the contrary, even if Congress was theoretically under no obligation to create a panel system, once it did, the panel system it created must abide by that which the con- by which constitutional due process requires. Second, what about the distinction between a panel and a jury? Does this make a difference? Well, let's consider how military appellate courts approached this distinction when Batson versus Kentucky was decided. In the wake of that momentous Supreme Court decision impacting jury trial rights, the government, at least at one time, contested that it applied to the military justice system. But as the Army Court of Military Review, the predecessor to the current Army Court of Criminal Appeals, noted at the time, quote, The government's first contention, that because the right to a jury does not apply to courts martial, neither do the constitutional safeguards designed to protect the jury system, is overbroad, end quote. Indeed, and although this perhaps speaks more to an argument premised upon the Fifth Amendment, The point remains that when the Court of Military Appeals ultimately held that the core protection announced in Batson applied to the military justice system in United States v. Santiago de Villa, it explained because the right announced in Batson applies by virtue of due process, quote, it applies to courts martial just as it does to civilian juries, end quote. And since Santiago de Villa was decided, the CAF has repeatedly held that the Batson line of cases applies to the military justice system. But even more recently, the CAF has recognized that a court-martial panel and a civilian jury both serve the same fundamental function. Consider its 2017 decision in United States v. Comisel, where a unanimous CAF stated the following, quote, 
The right to trial by an impartial panel lies at the very heart of due process. Our common law heritage, our constitution, and our experience in applying that constitution have committed us irrevocably to the proposition that the criminal trial has one well-defined purpose, to provide a fair and reliable determination of guilt. End quote. Now, here's what's interesting about this. With the exception of one word, this is a direct quote from Justice Marshall's dissent in Smith v. Phillips. The only word that Judge Ryan changed in her Comiso opinion is she substituted the word panel for jury. The site, for those who are interested, is 76MJ at 321. Thus, this unanimous and relatively recent Cath opinion recognizes that the word panel and jury are interchangeable in this context. Both have one well-defined purpose, to provide a fair and reliable determination of guilt. The argument therefore goes that to the extent there may be differences between a panel and a jury, their fundamental purpose is not one of them. Accordingly, because the Sixth Amendment requires unanimity and under the impartial jury clause of its text, the same holds true at court-martial given that, as again the calf held in Lambert, a military accused is entitled to an impartial panel under the Sixth Amendment. All right, having discussed the Sixth Amendment argument, let's now turn to the argument that the Fifth Amendment's due process clause independently guarantees the right to a unanimous verdict at courts-martial, irrespective of the Sixth Amendment. But before delving into this, let's get back to basics for a moment and get a lay of the land. First, neither Ramos nor Edwards relied upon the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, but that makes perfect sense because they concern state court cases where the 14th Amendment's due process clause applies, not the Fifth Amendment's. Because military courts martial are federal creatures, it is the Fifth Amendment's due process clause which applies to this argument. Second, unlike the 14th Amendment, the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment does not contain an explicit guarantee to equal protection in its text. However, since Bowling v. Sharp was decided by the Supreme Court quite some time ago, the guarantee to equal protection of the laws has been understood to apply as a matter of due process, thus requiring the federal government to comply with equal protection under the Fifth Amendment's due process clause in the same basic manner that state governments are required to comply with the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause. Accordingly, to the extent this issue is raised under an equal protection framework, it is still the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment which governs. Okay, all that said, one of the questions you may be asking is if Ramos was primarily centered upon the Sixth Amendment's guarantee to an impartial jury, what role does the Fifth Amendment have to play in all of this? Let's discuss. First, within the sphere of military constitutional challenges, the Supreme Court's 1976 decision in Bindorf v. Henry instructs that both the Sixth and the Fifth Amendment should be considered in such a context. In Middendorf, the Supreme Court was presented with the question of whether, a count, of whether counsel were constitutionally required at summary courts martial under both the Sixth and Fifth Amendment, even though it is the Sixth Amendment which guarantees the right to counsel. As the court explained in Middendorf, its conclusion that the Sixth Amendment did not guarantee counsel in such a form, quote, of course does not answer the ultimate question of whether the plaintiffs are entitled to counsel at summary court martial proceeding but it does shift the frame of reference from the Sixth Amendment's guarantee of counsel in all criminal prosecutions to the Fifth Amendment's prohibition against the deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote. The same basic analysis applies here. Second, and as I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, recall that in Ramos, a five-justice majority applied the Sixth Amendment's unanimity requirement to the states pursuant to the, do- the doctrine of due process incorporation. And as you may remember from your con law days back in law school, The very essence of the incorporation doctrine requires a threshold determination that the right at issue is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty liberty, or deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. 
and that once a Bill of Rights protection is incorporated, there is no daylight between the federal and state conduct it prohibits or requires. And I'm quoting there from the Supreme Court's 2019 decision in Timms v. Indiana. The argument, therefore, goes that even if the Supreme Court did not explicitly state in Ramos that unanimous verdicts are required as a matter of due process, it didn't have to. This was implicit by virtue of the fact it incorporated the right against the states pursuant to the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, it is important to clarify here that under the Supreme Court's standard for assessing whether a right is independently required by virtue of due process in the military justice system, the operative question is whether the factors militating in favor of the right are so extraordinarily weighty as to overcome the balance struck by Congress. That comes from Middendorf, but was reiterated by the Supreme Court in its 1994 decision, Weiss v. United States, in which the court concluded that due process in the military context did not guarantee the right to be tried before military judges with fixed terms in office. So the operative question from a Fifth Amendment fundamental fairness question is whether what Ramos requires is so extraordinarily weighty as to overcome Congress's pre-Ramos balance it struck when it raised the necessary threshold to convict in non-capitally referred cases from two-thirds to three-fourths. Let's start by considering what the Supreme Court said about Ramos the year after it was decided when it took up Edwards v. Vinoy. There, a six-justice majority described Ramos as, quote, momentous and consequential, end quote. It further explained that the rule it announced was not dictated by precedent or apparent to all reasonable jurists at the time it was decided. Rather, it reflected a new rule of criminal procedure. Indeed, the Edwards majority recognized that Ramos was on par with other landmark cases of criminal procedure like Mapp, Miranda, Duncan, Batson, and Crawford. That's what the majority had to say. But the three dissenting justices in Edwards ex- further explained just how important the right to a unanimous guilty verdict is. As Justice Kagan, quoting from Ramos itself, pointed out, quote, The court in Ramos termed the Sixth Amendment right to a unanimous jury vital, essential, indispensable, and fundamental to the American legal system, end quote. She then noted that rarely does this court make such a fundamental change in the rules thought necessary to ensure fair, fair criminal process. And as she later stated, at bottom, the court took the unusual step of overruling precedent for the most fundamental of reasons, the need to ensure, in keeping with the nation's oldest traditions, fair and dependent adjudications of a defendant's guilt. Again, that is precisely what the CAF recognized the very purpose of a court-martial panel was in Commissile. As it stated in that opinion, it has one well-defined purpose, to provide a fair and reliable determination of guilt. There is much more I could say about the Edwards dissent, but perhaps the most critical point is the following passage from Justice Kagan. Quote, The majority argues in reply that the jury unanimity rule is not so fundamental. Well, no, scratch that. Actually, the majority doesn't contest anything I've said about the foundations and functions of the unanimity requirement, nor could the majority reasonably do so, for everything I've said about the unanimity rule comes straight out of Ramos's majority and concurring opinions. Just check the citations. I've added barely a word to what those opinions, often with soaring rhetoric, proclaim. End quote. So the takeaway from the Edwards dissent is that there really isn't all that much disagreement about just how extraordinarily weighty the right announced in Ramos actually is. As the dissent explained, its characterization of the right comes straight from Ramos itself. Therefore, in terms of the right to a unanimous verdict being extraordinarily weighty, both Ramos and Edwards provide significant insight. But let's also consider the right to a unanimous verdict in relation to how a different right was presented before the Supreme Court under this same framework. In Weiss, the Supreme Court concluded that the right to a military judge with a fixed term in office was not so extraordinarily weighty, and in so doing, expressly tied its analysis to the lack of a connection 
between fixed terms and impartiality. Ramos, in contrast, reached the conclusion that it did because unanimity was required as a result of the Sixth Amendment's guarantee to an impartial jury. Moreover, in Weiss, the Supreme Court stated, quote, A fixed term of office, as petitioners recognize, is not an end in itself. It is a means of promoting judicial independence, which in turn helps to ensure judicial impartiality, end quote. But unlike a fixed term in office, unanimity is an end in and of itself. Whereas the Supreme Court recognized that Congress could ensure judicial impartiality through other mechanisms by insulating military judges with statutory and regulatory protections, the same cannot be said for unanimity. The only way to further the right to a unanimous verdict is to require the right to a unanimous verdict. That brings me to equal protection. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this specific Fifth Amendment argument, but it is important to note that earlier this year, a military judge in the Army ruled that the accused was entitled to a unanimous verdict as a matter of equal protection. In sum, his rationale was that there is no apparent or logical reason for the disparate treatment between civilians and service members in this particular respect. That case, which again, in the interest of full disclosure, I authored an amicus curiae brief in, is presently being considered by the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. Now, one issue the Army Court specified for consideration in that case is whether the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment is implicated in cases where accused are tried before courts martial under Clause 3 of Article 134 UCMJ. As you may know, under existing practice, a number of civilian crimes which are not criminally prescribed in the manual for courts martial may be prosecuted at courts martial under this provision of the UCMJ without any attendant need to prove prejudice to good order and discipline or service discredited in conduct. Think mail fraud under Title 18, for example. Where the equal protection argument becomes especially interesting is if we consider the fact that an active-duty military member can be prosecuted in federal district court for violating Title 18's mail fraud statute, but he or she can also be prosecuted at courts martial for the exact same offense under Clause 3 of Article 134. In the former scenario, the active-duty member is entitled to a unanimous verdict. In the latter, she's not. But who gets to make that determination as to what form this member will be tried in? Well, it's the very same government exercising its will to prosecute. In effect, the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense, two arms within the same branch of the same sovereign, get to decide whether a military member accused of a Title 18 offense will be entitled to a constitutional protection as fundamental as the unanimous verdict. To the extent any of you are involved in cases where an accused has been charged with violating a civilian offense under Clause 3 of Article 134 UCMJ, I note this for your consideration. Similar considerations may apply in cases where a named victim communicates his or her desire for the accused to be court-martialed rather than tried before a state or federal court with concurrent jurisdiction, because in such a scenario, an accuser, who is perhaps the least impartial party to a criminal trial, is able to effectively put their thumb on the scale in determining whether an accused will be entitled to a fundamental constitutional right. Now that we've discussed the basic framework of these arguments, let's consider the merits of some potential counterarguments. Counterargument 1. A unanimous guilty verdict will also require a unanimous acquittal, and will result in courts martial panels being hung when they disagree. This will in turn negatively impact the ability to quickly convene and conclude courts martial proceedings. A potential response to this counterargument. The Supreme Court of Oregon directly considered this precise question after Ramos was decided and rejected it. As it explained in the 2021 decision State v. Ross, quote, Ramos does not imply that the Sixth Amendment prohibits acquittals based on non-unanimous verdicts or that any other constitutional provision bars Oregon courts from accepting such acquittals, end quote. Accordingly, as the Oregon Supreme Court explained, from a constitutional perspective, nothing prohibits the military justice system's current practice of accepting non-unanimous acquittals. Ramos only requires unanimous convictions. Congress could, of course, statutorily create a system in which both convictions and acquittals need to be unanimous. But in the absence of new legislation and for present purposes, Ramos only requires unanimous convictions. 
Notwithstanding this, to the extent there is any lingering concern that a system in which unanimous guilty verdicts are required would somehow impact the efficiency of courts martial, a strong argument can be made that it would not impact their efficiency any more than all of the other Sixth Amendment rights which apply to court martial, including, for example, the right of confrontation. Surely the right to confront adverse witnesses impacts the efficiency of courts martial, especially when witness availability or travel play a role. But this has not led such countervailing concerns to bring about the abandonment of the confrontation clause at court martial. Let's consider a second counterargument. A unanimous guilty verdict requirement is necessary to thwart against the possibility of unlawful command influence. Okay, here's a potential response. First, our system already requires unanimous guilty verdicts in order for an accused in the Capillary-Ferd case to be eligible for the death penalty. If the threat of UCI does not override the unanimity requirement in those cases, then it cannot in any other. There is no reason to believe that UCI would only rear its head in non-capillary-referred cases. Second, there is no need to dispense with the secret written ballot requirement in courts martial. Because unanimous acquittals are not required under Ramos for the reasons addressed a moment ago, if an acquittal is returned, no one will know how any member voted in a particular case, either inside or outside the deliberation room, because the vote will have been taken in secret. The only case in which it will be known how a particular member voted is in those situations where a panel returns a unanimous guilty verdict. The CAF has already explicitly rejected the idea that a unanimous guilty verdict would stoke fears of UCI. As it stated in United States v. Loving, quote, where the vote is unanimous, those concerns about command influence would appear to be unfounded. End quote. Counterargument 3. Ramos did not overrule Johnson v. Louisiana. Therefore, the Fifth Amendment objection is without merit. A potential response. Even if we put aside all that the Supreme Court said in Ramos and how it subsequently noted that the rule it announced was a new one, Johnson presented an altogether different and more narrow claim under the Fifth Amendment. As Justice Powell recognized at the time, in Johnson v. Louisiana, the appellant concedes that the non-retroactivity of Duncan prevents him from raising his due process argument in the classic fundamental fairness language adopted there, and was instead left only with the ability to raise the limited argument on appeal that a non-unanimous verdict was a violation of the requirement to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, the due process argument Johnson dismissed prior to Ramos was a narrow and specific one. It was not a general rejection of any due process challenge to non-unanimous verdicts. The petitioner in Johnson was constrained by the limits and timing of his appeal. No such limitation applies to those raising this issue now. Litigants are free to raise this issue in the classic fundamental fairness posture that the petitioner in Johnson could not. In any event, Johnson was decided with the contemporary and erroneous understanding announced in Apodaca that the right to unanimous verdict was not required as a matter of due process incorporation, a conclusion which Ramos expressly overruled. Even in his Ramos concurrence, Justice Kavanaugh quotes from a number of different lines from the Johnson dissents, including this one from Justice Potter Stewart, which said, quote, The 14th Amendment alone clearly requires that if a state purports to accord the right of trial by jury in a criminal case, then only a unanimous verdict can return a constitutionally valid verdict. End quote. Justice Kavanaugh's Ramos concurrence then goes on to say, quote, The question at this point is not whether the Constitution prohibits non-unanimous juries. It does. End quote. All right. With that, I will bring it to a close. While there are many more nuances and intricacies to this issue, I hope that this discussion helped provide some insight into the matter. Again, I'd like to thank Mr. Daryl Johnson for allowing me the opportunity to guest host this program. Now, this being litigated libations, after all, and the duty day having concluded, I think I'll have myself a drink. Cheers. Cheers, and a huge thank you to Major Ryan Serkovich for an outstanding look at the issue of unanimous verdicts. 
I thought it was just great and super interesting, and you definitely earned that libation. If you have an issue or a topic that you would like to share and you are willing to guest host, please reach out. It helps me out, and I really enjoy the opportunity to learn. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. skies drive the dark clouds far away and will you please say hello to the friends that I know it won't be long and they'll be happy to know that you saw me go I was